One of the greatest pains we will experience in this life is that of broken relationships. Few things are going to be more difficult than going through the strain and the turmoil of something that was once unified that is now torn apart. It usually begins with some sort of an offense or a series of offenses. Some sort of a a fracture occurs, which ultimately leads to bitterness and alienation, estrangement. And in certain cases, you would say, there's no way these two would ever be reconciled again. That's even a box you can check when you file for divorce. It's irreconcilable differences. There's no way to reconcile these two things. And broken relationships we know are all around us. It's interesting, in the neighborhood we live in, there's about a block away, there was the beginning of an apartment complex. And they poured the the foundation and built the, the underground garage and they got the slab built for the first floor. And as the story goes, there was a dispute years ago between brothers that was never resolved And so this unfinished apartment building sits as a monument of a broken relationship. The rebar stubbed up in the first floor, rusted out after years of a relationship that couldn't be resolved. This is common in our own lives. We we all, to some degree or another, have experienced or know well a broken relationship. It's, it's, It's predominant. It's familiar. And we know the pain, whoever you are, of a broken relationship. But as painful as broken relationships are, there's nothing sweeter than reconciliation. The restoring of a broken relationship. Have you experienced this? Do you know this sweetness? As bitter and painful as a broken relationship is, the sweetness of reconciliation. The sweetness of a friendship, again, where there was estrangement, joy, again, where there was bitterness, open communication, where there was silence, and peace, where there was hostility. If you are a Christian in this room today, you have received the most unlikely of reconciliations despite the most insurmountable estrangement and alienation, you have been reconciled as sinful men and women to a holy God. There's nothing greater and sweeter than this reconciliation. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Christ's reconciliation of sinners. Colossians chapter 1, our text is verses 21 to 23. I'll read from verse 15 to give us context. Colossians 1, 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first 
place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And here's our text. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now let's think of the context here. I preached a text uh, uh, several verses before this a few months ago, but the context is this. Paul is imprisoned in Rome and he's, he's writing to the Colossian church because he's gotten word that they are under threat from false teachers. There's people who have come in and said they needed to add something to the gospel. They've come in and said that there can be more fullness in your life beyond simply Christ. And what we see here is in verses 15 through 20, he exalts Christ. And he's doing this all throughout this book. He's placing Christ as supreme, as supreme over anything else that somebody would try to present before you. And we get this lofty, lofty vision of Christ here. And then in verse 21, it's as if Paul is saying, all right, you've seen who Christ is, the creator, holds all things together. Here's how this applies to your life. Here's the application of verses 15 to 20. Here is how this matters to you, Colossians. And his desire in this text, in these three verses, is that they would understand Christ's reconciling work in their life. And because of that, they would know him better. They would worship him. And by that, the antidote to the false teachers would be knowing Christ better. They would be able to resist this false gospel. And the same could go for this room today. To fail to understand Christ's reconciling work in your life leaves you susceptible. We're we're easily pulled away from Christ. We could have our affections dulled by the world. We can be lured into deception by the world promising something other than Christ in our lives. Another gospel, satisfaction elsewhere. But Paul's gonna show us In these verses, four elements of reconciliation that are going to help us to guard against that. The first is the need of reconciliation. The second is the means. The third is the goal of reconciliation. And finally, the fourth is the proof. I'll mention these again as I go through it. But as we sit in this room today, there's there's two people. There's the reconciled. There's the children of God. And, And for you, it's that you would... The purpose would be that you would further comprehend the reconciliation that Christ has accomplished. And there's another group of people in this room, potentially. The unreconciled, enemies of God, our text says. For these people, I would hope that you would see your desperate need to be reconciled. Two people, the reconciled and the unreconciled. So let's look at this first element of reconciliation. Verse 21, the need for reconciliation. It says this, And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds. Notice what Paul does here. He does this often. He says, you were this. 
In Ephesians 2.1, we know the familiar verse, you were dead in your trespasses and, and sins, but now you're made alive. He loves to do this. This is what you were, here's what you are now. And the language he uses here is that they were persisting in the state. They were formerly persisting in a settled state of alienation and estrangement from God. I just would pause to say, uh, this is a good moment to talk about this idea of a before and an after. If you, as most of you probably have, have gone through the application process at Grace, there's a few very helpful questions that they ask. When did you become a Christian? is one of them. When did you become a Christian? And a couple other helpful ones are, what was your life like before? And what was your life like after? I was this, now I am this. But some common responses could be this. I've always been a Christian. You know, I was raised a Christian. People may believe that just because they were brought up in that environment, that makes them a Christian. Somebody else might say, well, this is when I started going to church this time. Or they might say, this is when I was baptized. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says at some point in your life, you had to come to the acknowledgement that you were a sinner. You had to understand that the punishment for your sins was death. You had to understand that you had to repent, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And with that, with all of that comes what? New affections, new desires, a new creation, Paul calls us. Distinct, the before, the after. And that's exactly what Paul does here. You were this, and he says you were alienated. Alienated from God, estranged. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it's, it's to describe somebody before salvation. And this is the story from the very beginning. What was Adam and Eve's instinct when they sinned? They avoided fellowship with God. They hid themselves and eventually God drives them out of the garden. Why? Because God cannot fellowship with sin. And all through the Old Testament, what do we see? We see barriers between God and man from the tabernacle to the temple, to the priesthood, all in place to mediate the relationship between a holy God and sinful men. But more than alienated, he says this, he says they were enemies in the mind and in evil deeds, or it could say hostile in your translation, hostile in mind, in their thinking, in their conduct. And evil deeds, the outworking evil deeds in our lives are stemmed in our mind. Turn with me real quick to uh, Romans chapter one. As Paul in Romans one is unpacking the unrighteous state of mankind, and he, and he goes on to describe all of the wickedness that man becomes involved in. Notice what he says in verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And repeatedly it says, God gave them over in the lust of their heart, verse 24. God gave them over again in verse 26 to, to dishonorable passions. And listen to what he says in verse 28. And just as God did not see fit, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. And Paul is saying that the, the thinking 
starts hostile and evil and it plays itself out in the life that we live. And this alienation, this is, this is an alienation by choice. Christ reiterates this in John 3.19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. The Bible describes the unbeliever as the one who loves the darkness that they're living in and are repelled by the light. You could turn back to Colossians 1. This is the condition of every person. If they're not a Christian, they are detached. They're estranged from God. There's no third category. There's not the saved by God, the enemies of God, and then my nice neighbor next door. There's not more than these two categories. And here's the objection you may be thinking or have heard. Surely I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not doing evil deeds. And the argument might go like this. I might not worship the Christian God, but he's not my enemy. I'm not hostile against him. Or I believe in God, I just don't want to be religious. Or I worship him in my own way. And the truth is, there could be people doing wonderful things in this world. I always think of the example I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones give. What about the doctor who quits their job and moves to Africa and gives their whole life to serve for nothing? What about that person? That person hates God. That person is hostile against God. That person is an enemy of God. Maybe there's family, friends, people in your life, coworkers. Am I to think of them as a non-Christian, as hostile to God? We have to ask ourselves, what designates an enemy of God? And we go to the authority of scripture. We don't start reasoning from our own sinful heart to tell us what an enemy of God is. Look at verses 15 to 20 with me for a second. Verse 16 says this, he or who, that's Christ, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created. He is the creator. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in Christ, the creator of the universe, the one who sustains and holds all things together, he created you, he allows you to live, he gives you breath in your lungs, he holds the world together. In Christ, there is no neutrality. There's no middle ground. Indifference to Christ is rebellion. Seeking your own way puts you in direct rebellion against God. Proverbs 6, uh, 16 to 17, the six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. The first, haughty eyes, proud eyes, eyes that look, examine the world in pride, in self, and lifting the self up, God despises this. Francis Schaeffer says, the beginning of men's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. That is, the beginning of men's rebellion was a lack of thanksgiving. And back to Romans 1.21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Many of these people would, go, would say, yeah, but what about Jesus? 
Jesus is a loving God. Surely doesn't, Jesus wouldn't view me as one who hates him. But what did he say in Matthew 16, 24? Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he says again in John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it that its deeds are evil. So Jesus says this, if you go your own way, you hate me. You are hostile to me. You are my enemy. Now, for those here who truly believe that we were enemies of God, what does this do for us? This causes us to exalt. This is evidence in our life. As an enemy of God, I was lavished with grace and mercy and forgiveness. My life looks radically different because I have seen the sinfulness of my own heart and realized I've been given free forgiveness in Christ, that he's wiped all of this hostility and enmity away. But the question is, do do the people walking around in the world and do we truly believe that the vast majority of the world is an alienation and estrangement to God? I imagine this picture, you've seen these animals that they've tried to rescue and uh, I'm thinking in particular of a horse that, that fell into some ice and the people who are there to rescue it end up fighting against it. The horse is sitting there kicking and, and bucking against them, against the only ones who can actually help them. They're, they're in a desperate situation, a dangerous situation, and the only one who can rescue them from that, they oppose. And that's what the world is doing. They stand in hostility against the only one who can reconcile them. This is the condition of every person before their conversion. Refusal to submit to the Lord who created you means you are in rebellion against the king. You're an enemy of the one who will judge and punish sin. We need a biblical understanding that the mind is the beginning of hostility against God and it plays itself out in evil deeds. And even if we have a life draped in what the world calls good, we can still have hostility in our hearts against God. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived in your own life and don't be deceived in the world as you see it. So there's a great need, an incredible need that the entire world has is standing in opposition to God. So how has God dealt with the sinful hostility of men towards him? What is number two, the element number two, what is the means of reconciliation? Verse 22, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. So here we have, you were but now. This idea of reconciliation, literally the root means an exchange, an exchange of hostility to friendship, a restoration of a right relationship between God and man, the hostility exchange for peace with God. Let's examine this reconciliation a little bit. It says, he reconciled you. Reconciliation is a work of God. Man does not affect this reconciliation by doing something to remove God's hostility towards sin. Sinners receive the reconciliation as a gift through the work of Christ. And Christ is the one who accomplished 
who is the means of this reconciliation. It occurred in the past in the once for all death of Christ. In his sacrificial death, we have to see the closeness between the propitiation, the the removal of God's wrath against sinners and the reconciliation, that is the removal of the enmity between God and man. He removes the wrath and along with that, the hostility that exists between man and God is taken away. The fundamental effect of reconciliation is in God. It's not first in man. Sure, man is hostile. He's depraved in his heart and in his mind, but God is hostile against sin and his holiness. God's wrath must be appeased. It abides over sinners. John 3, 36, he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Reconciliation is not us putting away somehow in our own strength, the enmity that we have against God. What can take away that hostility? Some good works, being a nicer person, cleaning up our lives? No, it is this. The alienation of God must be put away towards us. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And, and with this regeneration will come and the Holy Spirit will overcome man's hostility against God as it applies Christ's work to the sinners. And as Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. We're gonna look at this great summary of reconciliation in the life of Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. By exercising his wrath on Christ as our substitute and by imputing his righteousness to us, God removed the grounds of the enmity against him. What other means is there? What other way could this have been accomplished? What in the world has the value to satisfy God's wrath against sinful man? And Peter makes it clear in 1 Peter 1, 18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, you know, worthless things, only the most valuable things the world has. You weren't, you weren't redeemed with these worthless things the, the world calls value, valuable from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, the precious blood, more precious than what we call precious metals, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. What else is there? Reconciliation, as we know in this life, it requires a movement. One party, one of the estranged parties has to move towards the other. 
You have to make that movement to reconcile. One side reaches out. It's got to put to rest the grievance. We were hopeless to reconcile. God is, is not some family member we disagree with or some business partner, whoever, a, a, a spouse. The penalty for sin had to be paid. Failure to reconcile to God is death. But God intervened unilaterally. He reconciled us. Romans 5.10, in what state were we in? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So let me ask you this. Do you hold grudges? Do you hold grudges against people? Are you unwilling to humble yourself and make the move to reconciliation? When we examine the humility of Christ and see that we were active enemies towards him, and he came down and stooped down and became a servant and died on our behalf? How do we hold a grudge? How do we stand unreconciled in the relationships in our life when we see the example of Christ? What other way would we have been reconciled to God except for the blood of Jesus Christ? So we've seen the great need. We were hostile enemies. The only means of reconciliation was the blood of Christ. And to what end was this? That's the third element, the goal of reconciliation. The second part of verse 22. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So Paul holds the future before the Colossians. He, he reminds them of what he says in Romans 14.10. We will stand before the judgment seat of God. Christians must manifest this blamelessness before the judgment of God. We must be holy we must be sinless, dedicated to God, righteous, blameless, without fault, perfectly moral, beyond reproach, not to be called to account. No accusation could be brought against us. No reproach could be made against us. This is the eternal plan from the beginning, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. His goal is that we are pure. We would be blameless. We would have this necessary cleansing. The Old Testament demanded that sacrifices be without blemish. And we find the New Testament fulfillness in Christ. The author of Hebrews says in chapter seven, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered himself up. But we face challenges in this life. We're all gonna walk out of here unless you work on this campus or you work in a church and you're gonna be caught up in the life that you live. You're not gonna be surrounded by Christians who reiterate this truth to you. You're gonna be tempted by the world. You're gonna be potentially deceived by your own comfort. And you're gonna forget, why was Paul writing this letter? These people were forgetting what they had in Christ. He, they're forgetting the hope that they have, that they will be presented holy, blameless, and spotless. They were trying to add something to Christ. And the message of the world as you leave this building is, find your fulfillment elsewhere. Come, be one of us, add something to it. 
the two things we have to remember. The first is this, you will stand before God. All of us will stand before God. That should bring a sobriety and a fear. But we are reconciled. We're to be presented holy and blameless and without reproach. And with that, we rejoice. And the more, t- more often we remind ourselves of that, the more easily we're able to combat what the world is throwing at us. When we know where it ends, it helps us in the moment. I have a silly illustration, but I think of kids in a long car ride. You know, we make, it, we make it within an hour of wherever we're going and then they lose their mind and all craziness breaks loose. But what do you do with a kid in a long car trip? You're, you're constantly reminding them where we're going. We're going to so-and-so's house. We're going on this trip. We're gonna see this when we get there. We speak about the place we're going to to calm them down and remind them. And it seems silly, but that's what we need to do. We're like kids on a long car trip and we get fussy and we wanna start finding fulfillment in other places and other things and be distracted and seek comfort and all these things. We need to be reminded like the parents saying, this is where you're going. Stay focused. This is where you're gonna end up. Don't be lured away. Always in the background of this letter is the temptation to be pulled away by false teaching. Nothing will thwart God's stated purpose. Through the blood of Christ, he will present his own holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Remind yourselves of that. Set the goal in front of you. Be motivated by it. And that connects to our our final element. That is our participation in this. We've seen the great need. We've seen that it's only accomplished in Jesus Christ. We see that the, the end is that we would be holy and blameless and without reproach. And in verse 23, it says this, the proof of our reconciliation, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So now we see what appears to be a condition for all of this. Paul's Paul's placed some sort of a work in our path. And there may be an objection now saying, so my salvation is dependent upon my performance. You'll present me holy and blameless and beyond reproach if I do something. But this, this type of an idea is common in scripture. It's, it's not foreign. Paul says this in Romans eleven twenty two. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who, who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And the author of Hebrews says a a similar thing. He says in Hebrews 3.6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In the words of Jesus, John 8.31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free if you continue in my word. 
So let's summarize it like this. The biblical teaching is this. Divine preservation, that is God keeping us, God holding us, that is once saved, always saved. This, this preserving of God always, always presupposes human perseverance. And what that means is that we participate in this. God will preserve us as we persevere in this life. Perseverance in our faith, the demonstration in our lives that we believe proves the genuine character of our faith. It proves it. As Pastor John was mentioning today, you, you, will, you will know them by their fruit. The way we live testifies to what we say we believe. Titus 1.15, speaking to false teachers, he says this, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. If you have received the benefit of the once for all saving act of Christ on the cross, you will live a life that persists in that faith, that continues in that. And what's interesting in a text like this is we quickly want to go to and go, wow, he's telling us, this is so difficult. And in some ways it is difficult to comprehend, but read, read this and let's think through this a little bit. Let's, let's prove that this is not based on works. He says this, verse 23, let's think of it carefully. If indeed you continue, so if you continue, then you will be presented holy and blameless. If you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he paid the penalty for our sins, that we would, if we would believe in him, we would be forgiven. Justification by faith. You can do nothing to earn your salvation. That's the gospel. And Paul's saying here, the irony is, only if you abandon the gospel, which says, I can do nothing, is, am, I, am I in danger of not being presented holy and blameless. He's saying, here's what you have to, here's all you have to do. Hold on, to hold on to the thing that says there's nothing you can do to earn it. That's what he's saying. There, there's no contradiction here at all. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what you need to hold to. The fact that you can't do anything to save yourself. Nothing in you is gonna save you. The gospel. Faith in Christ alone. That's what he's saying. So here's the required work that you must perform. Trust that there's nothing you can do in yourself. Rely wholly on Christ and his finished work. That's, that's all you have to do. That's simply have faith. Simply believe. It's not Paul saying there's something you must satisfy for your forgiveness. But this is the very thing that the false teachers were trying to convince the church of that there was more that you needed to do, that there were other things. They were, it was this Gnostic Judaism or early, early form of it, early form of Gnosticism. It was that there was more fullness in something else and pieces of the law that they were trying to throw in. And you'll see that later in Colossians. Don't be tempted by that. Paul's not trying to cast doubt on the, to the Colossians. Chapter two, verse five, he says this, even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the stability of your faith. He just says right there, you have stable faith. 
He's not trying to cast doubt on them saying, you will be presented holy and blameless if, if, only if you do this. He's saying, you're stable. But where you will become unstable is if you move away from the hope of Christ. He had genuine concern about these false teachers that they would come in, he says in chapter two, verse 18, that they would defraud them. And it's the same concern we would have in this group that there is somebody trying to deceive you or or a temptation trying to deceive you. Uh, Chapter two, verse eight, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Let's talk about this for a second. Deception is real obviously. But deception, by its very definition, is not something you're going to perceive as happening. When you're being deceived, you don't walk around going, I think I'm, I'm being deceived right now. No, you don't know you're being deceived. That, that's what deception is. You don't even know it's happening. And, and yet we have to guard against it. And that's what Paul is doing. You will be deceived. The world will deceive you. You're not going to know this is happening. What is the cure for that? Anchored in the truth of who Christ is. So how do we fall away? Do we fall away in one big fail swoop, walk away from the Lord? No, how does it happen? Deception works incrementally, little by little, little compromise by little compromise, wrong thought, followed by another wrong thought, unchecked by the scriptures. Wrong action coming out of those wrong thoughts to greater actions and greater actions. And before you know it, nobody stood there on a single day and said, I'm gonna follow a false gospel. I'm gonna abandon the Lord. I'm walking away. Deception gets into their lives. And if we think we're above it and read letters like this and go, how could they fall for something like this? Of course, this isn't true. We're arrogant and, and we're being deceived. So how do we guard against this? Paul gives us a couple of building terms here. He says that you can be firmly grounded. You need to be firmly grounded, grounded, verse 23. That is your foundation. It literally means to lay the foundation of something. So the the foundation is Christ, grounded in Christ. It's the same word that that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. The, The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, it slammed against the house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And he uses this word steadfast. Another sort of building term just means firm, fixed. It's this moral fixity. So together it's being founded in the truth, fixed in your position and not moved. The power and faithfulness of God are expressed in the steadfastness of our faith. Let's think about that. God expresses his power and his faithfulness in our steadfastness. We don't have to go far to prove this either. Just go down a few verses to chapter one, verse 29. Paul says this, for this purpose, I also labor, I labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me in power. I, Paul, labor, and I, by laboring, in the demonstration of God's power. Philippians 2.13 Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the gospel that we are to hold on to, Paul says, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and that he was made the minister. Proclaimed through all the known world, 
the universal answer to any person's spiritual fulfillment. That's the gospel. And Paul says, he is this minister. I was made a minister of this gospel. And back in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, we are ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says again, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the message that I wouldn't assume in a room with 200 plus people, it would be foolish to assume every person in here is reconciled to God through Christ. And the message is, is clearly stated right here. Any person who claims the name of Christ is an ambassador for Christ. We would beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That you may stand in a position of hostility against God. Do not be deceived. Ground yourself in the truth. All of mankind is in desperate need. All of mankind. There's, there's no other means of coming, back, coming to God except for the blood of Christ. And he's doing it to present us holy and blameless and without reproach. And we prove this work in our lives by persistently following Christ. So be unmovable. Ground yourself in that truth. Reflect on the hope that you have in the gospel and you will stand before him on that day, holy and blameless. The joy we experience in earthly reconciliation, the joy I spoke about at the beginning, reconciling a fractured relationship, bringing it back together, that joy pales in comparison to the heavenly reconciliation, being right with God. That joy makes Christ sweeter than any temptation of this world to lure us away. Any addition to Christ, any fulfillment outside of Christ, the sweetness of that reconciliation does away with it. I remember I was reading a few years ago and I became a believer later in life, in my mid-30s, and I can remember reading the Bible, always had gone to church often, but at that point, after repenting and believing, I came across a verse and I realized for the very first time, I had actually meditated on a verse of scripture. And it was Romans 5.1. Therefore, we have peace with God through Christ. We have peace with God. I remember and I realized I was an enemy of God. I was a church attender. I would have called myself a Christian, had never repented and sat in hostility because something was coming and imposing its will upon my life. So don't fool yourself. If you have not been reconciled to God, be reconciled through the blood of Christ. I'm gonna close with a quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. Says this, here we see the infinite love of God, that he has been pleased to think of us poor creatures from everlasting and make it his work to reconcile us to himself. And here's the foundation of the sweetness and comfort of all the mercies of God to those who are reconciled to him. They're the fruits of the eternal love of God for us. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. 
for your goodness. We thank you for providing us reconciliation. I pray that these truths would sink deep into our hearts, that we would not be lured away to a false gospel or fulfillment outside of Christ. Thank you for your clear word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.